Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to Q Commentator. And, uh, well, a very special hello. I'd, uh, I'd probably bang a gong if I had one uh, for the start of Series 3. Uh, yes, I know you're as surprised as me. Uh, and uh, the good news is that the rest of Series 3 is all planned and ready to be recorded and rolled out. And we have some fantastic guests lined up. Um, of course, we are kicking off the series with an amazing commentator and well-known voice. Uh, but before that... Just a chance to uh, thank the likes of Mark Leckie uh, for leaving a review on iTunes. Mark, thank you. Uh, He said, just got into this and it's fascinating. Always love the backstories about people and this is delivered, especially with such famous voices that have been part of my life for so long. Uh, Mark, thrilled you're enjoying it. Also, thanks to Helen Murray, uh, who reached out on Twitter to at Q Commentator. Uh, I'd also like to say to everyone else listening, and there are several hundred of you doing so, which is nice. Um, the review page is a bit bare. So um, please, look, it'll take you two minutes to write something. Uh, it's such a rewarding thing for me and others to see listener feedback. Uh, so if you can leave a review, I'd be really grateful. Um, that's enough begging, but do go and do that thing. Thank you so much. Um, so to today's guest, a career that began at Radio York and has then covered, well, every footballing corner and every microphone for the biggest broadcasters. Uh, Given the nature of going through this man's mightily impressive CV, which uh, I do in summary at the start of this episode, um, this interview, I'm I'm not going to give it the big build here. Uh, Suffice to say, today's guest is John Champion. Uh, We spoke during lockdown via an online recording suite, so uh, there's a little bit of that kind of sound to it, just to let you know. Um, As you will hear, John is affable, uh, does an excellent falsetto a la the late uh, Terry Jones. Um, He got a nice kitchen out of his Pro Evo soccer football game voiceovers um, and is another reason simply why producing this podcast series is such a joy. Without further ado, Q commentator John Champion. Thank you very much for joining me. How are you? Very good. Thank you, Nick. How are you doing? Yes, I'm very well, thank you. Um, it seems uh, fortuitously caught you uh, caught you in the UK because, uh, well, the uh, the current circumstances of the world have meant that we've had you here for a few weeks rather than uh, than your new home of uh, of over the pond. 
Yes, uh, I came back with my wife and, and youngest son, who is uh, wanted to go to university in the UK, but is at school, at high school in the, the US at the moment, which is a, a story all of its own. Um, we came back early March for two weeks. Flights have been in the diary for months. And uh, we got on the plane in Boston, which is where we live over there. And by the time we got off at Heathrow, uh, Trump had imposed his entry restrictions. So we can't go back at the moment. So our two-week stay, our fortnight at home, has become 13 and a half weeks so far and counting. But there yeah. is some glimmer of hope on the horizon um, because Major League Soccer, the product on which I primarily work in the United States for ESPN, is due to come back with a quarantine tournament in Orlando at the, the Wide World of Sports at Disney, uh, starting on July the 9th. And so they require me back for that. And in tandem with sports gradually returning across America, um, Trump is beginning to issue travel waivers to let certain people associated with those sporting events in. So my expectation is that within the next couple of weeks, I'll get an email saying you are welcome back um, as long as you behave yourself and do your self-isolation when <laughs> yeah. you get back. So, yes, we're, we're sort of betwixt and between at the moment. But it's been a, yeah. an interesting time, as I, I think it has for so many people. Indeed. Well, Boston's loss is cue commentators' gain. Let's uh, let's say that much at least. Um, to uh, as, as regular listeners to the podcast will know, I, I sort of it's not necessarily about my my guests' life stories. It's nice to get into the the devil of the detail and and in why as as commentary voices uh, we do what we do and how we do it. Um, but it was interesting, sort of going through your rap sheet as I was pre- preparing for it, and actually, you know, there's there's so much in there that that is indicative of where. Sp- Sport has moved over the years and the fact that to your credit you've been one of clearly the, the the primary targets for a lot of these broadcasters as they as they've moved into into new sport um i just think it is quite interesting to to almost perhaps we spend a few minutes just just checking the rap sheet and going through it and then <laughs> perhaps i can come back once we've once we've sort of rounded that off and and talk about talk about the commentary um if that sounds all right so um the very beginnings of uh, of, the, of the sort of wikipedia style entries born in harrogate schooled in york went to university um, uh, University of Leeds. I mean, there was no taking the boy out of Yorkshire, was there? No, there wasn't, um, uh, which was in part accidental, really. I mean, I, my parents were from either end of the country. So my mum is a Geordie. My father was a Londoner. And uh, they were both school teachers. And when they got married in the early 1960s, they decided they wanted to live sort of halfway between their respective home cities. So they settled on York, which is a lovely place to be uh, to be brought up. So that's where I lived until I was 19 and went off to college to do my degree. I was only born in Harrogate because my mum's best friend was a midwife who offered to deliver me, but she worked in <laughs> Harrogate. So the first two days of my life were spent there, and thereafter it was, it was York. And I had a, a great upbringing. I was a grammar school boy, managed to pass the 11 plus. Mm-hmm. Uh, my dad became the deputy head of a Quaker public school, small school, about 300 pupils, which was located about 200 yards away from the front door of York Minster. And wow. um, prior to that, he was a housemaster because it was a boarding school. And so we were given the most magnificent three-story Georgian terraced house to live in on one of the main thoroughfares leading down to, to York Minster. Um, so I grew up uh, in this house with huge high ceilings and ornate cornicing. And then at the back were all the school grounds. So I had immediate access to all the tennis courts, the rugby pitches, the football wow. pitches, the swimming pool. I got music lessons on tap as well. My parents were insistent that I played the violin and the piano. So I did both of those to grade eight. Um, but I, you know what it is, Nick, when you're young and your parents have decided that they want you to be a particular thing, which in my case, I think was probably a professional musician, and they push you towards it, you rebel against it. Indeed. So, 
although I've ended up making my career out of broadcasting and professional sport, that was something that they really didn't lead me towards in any sense at all. I was push, push, push towards the, the music side of things. So I used to get sent on a Saturday to orchestra practice for three hours. It was oh horrible. My goodness. So yeah. you can imagine why a, an obstreperous teenager quickly turned against that and decided that he wanted to do something <laughs> that his parents didn't want him to do. So, yeah, that, those were my sort of formative days growing up in York. Yeah, well, uh, listeners will, will, won't be surprised that my ears have pricked up to the musicality already, as it's a theme I often come back to, but but more of that later, perhaps. Um, little surprise then, given given those links that BBC Radio Leeds was uh, was where you began broadcasting, I understand. Um, and, uh, I mean, was that your first foray onto the microphone? Yes. Uh, well, yeah, Radio Leeds, yes, I suppose it was, actually. Uh, I mean, the synopsis of how I got started... Uh, it's completely accidental. I had no thought that I actually wanted to be a sports broadcaster, although by that stage of my life, I'd grown to love sport and watched a lot of it. But the one sport I could play to a decent level was cricket. And as you know, cricket borders on religion in Yorkshire. So Mm. if you do reasonably well playing in a game of league cricket, then it attracts a bit of media attention, probably just the local paper, sometimes the local radio station. And I played in a cricket match in York one day and got a few runs and retired to the bar afterwards um, at this stage, I was 19, had just left school with horrendous A-level results. I got a B and an E. I took four. And oh, I failing oh, join English. the club. <laughs> I, got a, I, I got an A, a D and an N. Oh, right. Oh, well, you did better than I did then. Um, so I managed to fail English. Uh, I got a B in general studies, which, if you recall, was the exam that you couldn't actually revise for. All you had to do was read the papers and have a bit of general knowledge. And I got an E in German. So it wasn't a great footing on which to (laughs) start my professional life in whatever direction it was going to take me. So I'd resolved that I would take a year off after school. I didn't have anything like enough UCAS points to go to university or any sort of degree course, or so I thought. So I thought I'll get myself a job for six months and then I'll go traveling for six months. So I Mm. found a job as an assistant librarian at the British Lending Library at Boston Spa, which is near Weatherby in West Yorkshire. And it's it's a huge warehouse. It's also the biggest lending library in the world. It's where if you're an eminent professor in Burundi and you need a periodical from 1952 and a specific article, you get in touch with the British Lending Library at Boston Spa. And some poor minion like myself will have to go and in those days photocopy the article and then send it off to whatever university in Burundi. So that was my job. It was menial. It was boring. But it allowed me to earn enough money to then go traveling. So that just gives you the context of where I was in my life, wondering what the yeah. future would, would possibly hold. So I played in yeah. a cricket match one day, got a few runs, went to the bar afterwards, had a few beers. And then the payphone, as it then was, in the corner of the clubhouse rang. This was 1984. Um, right. And it was the local radio station, BBC Radio York, which had only been in existence for a matter of months at that stage and didn't really have a formal sports department. And they wanted mm. to interview me about my innings that day. So fortified by several pints of Tetley's Yorkshire Bitter, I whacked yeah. lyrical about my innings, um, <laughs> thought no more about it, went back to the bar, had a few more beers. I'd love to find that interview. Two, two, <laughs> I don't think you will. Um, <laughs> Two weeks later, phone call at home, sports editor, newly appointed of the local radio station, looking for some people to report on some rugby and some football uh, this coming winter. There's no money in it. There's pin money. We'll pay your travelling expenses. But it might be fun. We like the sound of your voice. You sounded very fluent when you did your interview. Well, you bet I sounded fluent because of the number of beers I'd had. (laughs) So I said yes. 
couldn't think of any better course of action at that stage, did this for another six weeks. And there was a phone call again at home, this time from the manager of the radio station saying, we really think you've got something. You sound very natural on the air. Are you enjoying it? Do you find it easy? And quite honestly, I hadn't given it a second thought. It just it just happened. Um, So he went on to say, we think you've actually got a chance of potentially making a career out of this if you're interested. However, the BBC isn't going to take a raw 19 year old. We only take graduates. So his suggestion was that I go and find myself a degree course to go and have a good time and grow up a bit. It doesn't Mm. matter what degree course, he said, and we'll give you work at weekends. And as long as you train on, we'll give you a job at the end of it. And they were as good as their word. So two weeks notice, helped by my school teacher father's contacts, I managed to get a place on a course called Communication and Cultural Studies with Public Media which was a mouthful. It was a forerunner of a media degree. It was elements of psychology, sociology, a little bit of media. Oh, yeah, okay. At a Catholic teacher training college called Trinity and All Saints in Horsforth, which is a suburb of Leeds. Now, this was a place attended largely by Catholic seminarians. So within two weeks, I knew the lyrics to every Pogue song. (laughs) And it's not a bad education. (laughs) It served its purpose in that, I I still was no sort of academic at all, but I was vaguely interested in the subject matter on the course. And then gloriously, every weekend, BBC Radio York or Radio Leeds, who'd also shown an interest, would send me out to report or commentate largely on football up and down the country. And the money from that supplemented my grant and it also gave me more experience. And after a while, I was being offered jobs by local radio stations. And then I think I was also offered a job by GMTV and I was offered a job by this nascent organization called british satellite broadcasting as well the forerunner of well, sky what have happened to them um and yeah and and i said no to all of these although i was very tempted because i thought like the young sportsman making his way and their parents always say don't leave your academic qualifications behind in case this career doesn't work out so i stuck at it and then six weeks before my finals um there was a, a phone call from a very prim and proper lady at HR at the BBC in London. I forget her surname, but let's call her Miss Jackson for sake of argument. And I picked up the phone and she said, hello, it's Miss Jackson here from the Human Resources Department of the British Broadcasting Corporation, Horton Place, London W1. How are you, Mr Champion? And I said, um, well, I'm delighted to be talking to you, Miss Jackson, but to what do I owe the, the privilege? Um, mm. And she said, well, it's about the job. And I said, right. the job? She said, yes, the job. I said, you're going to have to enlighten me here. Was well, being played by spoken. Terry Jones? Yeah. <laughs> I've nobody spoken to you about the job. We have an opening coming up at Leeds. I believe it's in the north of the country for a sports reporter <laughs> on BBC <laughs> Local Radio. Uh, we think you'd be the ideal candidate. We've booked you in for an interview. Friday, three o'clock. Don't forget to wear a tie. Oh, and by the way, these are the questions we'll ask you. And these are the answers we would quite like to hear. Oh, wow. Put the phone down. So it was a complete setup. So I turned up for the interview, and to this day, and I've never told him, I feel very guilty because Rob Hawthorne was also a candidate for that job. And I was sitting in the interview room, and I knew Rob by that stage and a few others, and I was looking around this room thinking, I'm not sure I'm any better qualified than you to do this job, but I'm getting it. And that's before I'd even gone in to do the interview. So that's what happened. They kept the job open for six weeks, and then as soon as my final exams at college had finished, um, 
that was it. I was, I was working go. at BBC Radio Leeds as a as a sports. He reporter. was in. He was in. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, that, I mean, that that is that is really interesting, and and I think that the sort of first link as to how people get in is is often the most interesting. I think for for people listening, um, I'll sort of I'll sort of skip through a little quicker through the rest of it, and we, and we'll come back. But um, you know that that then took you on to BBC Radio Two Network Sport. Um, you were working then on on Five Live as well. I think, or before that, you'd gone to to Italia ninety at the age of twenty five. Um, doing some presenting and reporting. I know that you'd you'd done some work on rugby league as well. Course Five Live then launched in 1994, um, and I believe you had a show called Champion Sport, which I guess is just nominative determinism in its greatest form. Um, <laughs> and uh, working alongside the likes of Alan Green, Mike Ingham, Ron Jones, Rob Hawthorne, you mentioned Jonathan Ledyard. Um, opportunity to cover John Motson on Match of the Day then came along on TV, um, and uh, and so I, I believe you took that up for a few months Clive Tilsey then exiting the following season allowing uh one John Champion to to continue a little more I've started to move into a that's life sort of delivery here um and uh and then Champions League final in 96 Juve against Ajax alongside the great Peter Drury um Euro 96 then television commentary with the BBC staying with them until 2001 then obviously we know that that certain rights moved across to ITV and mm. and John went with them um to the Premier League 2007 then got the call to go to Satanta, which uh, which you did alongside ITV work. Then Satanta became ESPN. Um, I think it was around that time you were also starting your work with Konami and, and Pro Evolution Soccer, um, which I know many people will be interested in, as am I. Um, and then sort of in the last couple of years, the likes of ITV and ESPN have, have, have continued to feature ESPN, getting you over to the States for the MLS. And, and you've even tried your hand with Prime Video Sport as well. So that it's sort of, in, in a nutshell, you know, as I mentioned at the start, going through it, it does seem that a lot of these broadcasters, as they start to get rights to football, go, "We know who the man is that we want," and and that that you know is a wonderful reflection on on your ability and, and talent. Um, you can add in three Olympic games and some World Cups in in rugby league. I, I think I don't know if it was Union yeah, as well. No, I did two two rugby union World Cups for ITV. Okay, right. And, yeah, uh, I should know that. And fifteen, and and a rugby league World Cup and a cricket World Cup as well for the BBC. So there've been a, a few World Cups of various descriptions yeah yeah with the cricket as well so you know what what where to start almost but um you know hopefully all of that is broadly correct um <laughs> how did you find in in those early days then which which may be taking us back to sort of you know bbc radio leads and 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 that side of it but how did you find those those opening moments of uh, well having to find your voice without several pints of Tetley's bitter? <laughs> well, that was a challenge in itself. But I think what those early days gave me was a uh, a comfort with the microphone. Um, didn't view it as a threat or as an intrusion or as an inhibitor, but mm-hmm. just as a means of communication. And I, because I was able to put plenty of miles on the clock very early before I'd even had a chance to really think it all through. I think that benefited me. I mean, I've got so much to be grateful to local radio for because it's the most wonderful place to learn your trade because you do make mistakes. I mean, we all make mistakes right the way through our careers, but I think there are more of them and there may be more grievous in those early days when you are finding your way. And if you can do it on local radio where the comeback is going to be admonishment from the manager rather than a front page splash in the Daily Mail or the Sun, then that's that's good news. So I made a a whole bundle of mistakes and I also fell under the wing of a producer called Derm Tanner, who still operates to this day um, as, as a trainer. He now lectures in broadcasting and journalism up in Yorkshire. But he was a sports producer at Radio York and then at Radio Leeds. And he was 
one of those people who's so valuable to a young broadcaster because he has the most terrific ear and he's also not afraid to tell you the bad news as well as the good. And I think anyone that's worked in professional broadcasting uh, largely gets to the opinion fairly quickly that you're not going to get a lot of feedback. You'll only hear if things are going wrong. But he Spot actually on. would take me on one side and say, look, that was good, but that was awful. What are you playing at? Um, and I knew I could rely on his judgment. So that was a big part of my early years and, and that development. And then when I went to national radio, I was 24 when I got the call to go down and join Radio 2. And I mm. walked in on my first day to the sports room at Broadcasting House and Peter Jones was in one corner, one of the greatest commentators that radio certainly has ever seen. Brian Butler was sitting next to him, the football correspondent. Ian Robertson, the rugby man, Peter Bromley, Christopher Martin Jenkins, who did the cricket. So if you can't learn from people like that, then you really are struggling. And then wind it on five or six years and I get taken on by match of the day and I go to our first production meeting and sitting on my left is John Motson and on my right is Barry Davis. So Goodness. I've been extremely lucky with the people with whom I've been able to rub shoulders. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, it's worth touching on. It's come up so much, the opportunities that local radio have afforded people. And there's no getting away from the fact that resources are pulled out of, have been pulled out of local radio for years. And, and it's got to be having a knock on effect on, on the opportunities for people, but also the, perhaps the quality, because it's not providing that many people with, with, as you say, that arena to, to ultimately to fail quietly from time to time. <laughs> no, it's a good point, Nick. But there again, if you are in BBC Local Radio now, you're probably not aiming or being aimed towards the same sort of opportunities and jobs that I was 30-odd years ago because the industry has changed almost to the point where it's beyond recognition in terms of your those jobs, existence as a Because those jobs don't exist. No, they don't. They really yeah. don't. Um, and it's very sad that they don't. I, I think... The role of the broadcaster, particularly of the commentator, has been in some senses cheapened um, across the industry and especially in television now, partly because there's so much of the product and there are so many channels as well. But also, I think so many of the executives are so fixated on the studio rather than the outside broadcast element. You know, we, we just do our bit and it happens. But mm. so much of the attention is paid to the 10 minutes before kickoff, the half time, and then the post-match when you've got three guys talking to a presenter on a studio set somewhere. And yet, if you look at the viewing figures, they spike yeah. when the live action starts and go down at half time when people go to make a cup of tea. So there's always yeah. been that rather perverse uh, approach to it from a number of the executives. But I think they find it easier to make an impression by signing a big name pundit or panelist than yeah. by trying to tweak the commentary. So we just have to go on and do our job. We're not the stars of the operation. We are the, the, the bare bones, really. Um, so I, I don't think there's a particular amount of glamour attached to, to what we do, as opposed to being Gary Neville on Sky or whoever it might be, Graham Sunet. Mm. Um, but I rather prefer being slightly under the radar and just going, I think we've got the best job possible, actually being at the event and being given the privilege of relaying it to maybe millions of, of people. I mean, what fun that is and what fun yeah. it, it still is. So the nub of the job is the same. It's just that the way in which you're asked to operate in the UK is now very different in terms of the opportunities you do or don't get and the number of times you've got to perform your role in every calendar year to make the same amount of money that probably our predecessors 20 years ago were making by doing a quarter of the work. Yeah, yeah, it's, which is a good point. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, the, and, and actually what's nice is that you have the opportunity to be sat there watching the occasion. You're being paid to do it. You're getting to relay it to loads of people. And you're not 
the big celebrity name or face so you can get up and and pack up your little bag and pop it over your shoulder and walk out the stadium and nobody knows that you've just been the voice that brought it to thousands obviously people like yourselves and and Clive Tilsley you know have more of a more of a profile but it is still a you know it's still handily more anonymous than than, than most of the rest of it it's really niche I mean if you think of someone like Barry, Barry Davis walking down the street in West London most people won't know who he is. And yet, mm. were he to open his mouth, particularly talk about sport, then everyone would say, that's that man that I've been listening to for 50 years. And what a wonderful yeah. man he is. Um, but yeah, he can live his life without intrusion and inhibition, which is great. Yeah. And he does love getting inhibited. He really does. <laughs> uh, so uh, obviously with the start of, of the sort of presenting and, and reporting side that you were doing through through Leeds and, and Network Sport when, when you'd moved down to London and, and that side, you know, within that, you had you had approached your first commentary. You you you'd done that that side of it. Had you? Uh, where was where was that? How do you remember that experience? Uh, first commentaries were on local radio, football commentaries by yeah. and large. Also some cricket and some rugby league because rugby league in that patch around Radio Leeds was such a, such a huge yeah. thing. Um, the first network commentary that I remember do, doing came by accident. It was an FA Cup tie on a Sunday. Uh, between Swindon and Aston Villa, fifth round of the cup. This would be early 1992. And uh, I got a phone call at 11 o'clock the previous night to say Mike Ingham had gone down ill and lost his voice. And it was very encouraging the way they put it. They said, there's no one else. (laughs) So I think I'd been due to present the programme in London that day because I'd been pushed very much towards presentation. So I was presenting Sport on 2 quite often, Sport on 5 when the station morphed into that lots of the sports mm. desks, which were hourly at that stage. Uh, and I had my own programme, as you, you mentioned as well, uh, on a midweek evening. Um, but my ambition had always been to actually be at the events rather than be stuck in a studio in the bowels of Broadcasting House. So this was great. And what made it easier was that this game, when Mike Ingham fell ill, the co-commentator was Martin O'Neill. So frankly, I didn't oh. have to do much. No, because he does, he, he's not shy of a word or two. He's not shy of a word, and he's got plenty of energy. And it all seemed to go very well, thanks largely to Martin O'Neill, and um, it gave the, the, those running the sports department the idea that I could commentate at that sort of level. And so opportunities became more frequent in the following season, which would be the start of the Premier League. They said, right, we'll co-opt you onto our full-time commentating roster. And the balance changed. So I presented a few programmes, but commentated a lot, which suited me far better. And what was your your psyche as a as a young commentator at that stage? Were you were you backing your own ability and and you know obviously taking the opportunities that that clearly came your way with the backing of you know knowing that well if I'm booked again this is this is all well and good as I think a lot of people feel. How much were you uh, not in awe of but but you know aware of the talent around you and and how how much you could be learning from them at, at that point? Well, it was. Um... It was a fairly jaw-dropping moment to walk into that office that I described at Broadcasting House mm. and see those names on day one and for them to come up and say hello and wish me well. Um, and a lot of them provided long-term advice as well and, and guidance. They wouldn't thrust it upon you, but you knew that they were there and would offer an opinion if you asked for it, which mm. was great. Um, so that was fairly daunting, moving into that company, having had local radio where... You knew you could make the mistakes. You also, basically, most of the news you got was good. You know, we think yeah. you're great and you've got great chances of moving further up the ladder within our industry. So I mm. suppose I'd been on a course where I kind of expected to go to national radio for a, a couple of years. Um, so when it happened, it, it wasn't a crikey, 
how have I managed this? It was yeah. just part of what seemed to be, in those innocent early days, a natural progression. Because everything seemed to happen quite easily. And so I never really thought it through. And I think the first time that I had a pinch me moment was actually when I pitched up at Italia 90, just past my 25th birthday, as the main presenter mm-hmm. of the World Cup on BBC Radio. And I'd been out of local radio for five months at that Incredible. Point. So... To be there and to be working with these great people like, um, you know, Brian Butler, sadly, Peter Jones had passed away a few months before. I mean, my first ever day presenting Sport on Two, which was a big milestone in my career, was the day that he collapsed and died covering the boat race. So I thought Sport on Two was one of the saddest occasions that BBC Radio Sport has has ever had to broadcast. And then um, he actually survived for a, a couple of days across that weekend. Obviously, boat race was the Saturday. And then on a Monday, I was down to present the sports desks and the main one of the day on radio two was at 6 45 they set aside quarter of an hour to do all the day's sports news and mm. uh, it was announced within the office that he passed away that afternoon and cliff morgan who was his closest friend another great welshman um yeah. came in to do the the obit and insisted on doing it live on this sports desk and we cleared the schedules we gave him eight minutes of the 15 to do the obit for peter yeah. jones and he sat there opposite me and we sat down to do this and he was very emotional about it and I, I said, are you okay, Cliff? He said, yeah, yeah, just, I, I just need to do this, he said. And he didn't have a note in front of him. And he had a handkerchief in his right hand with it. She was dabbing his eyes. And so I did the little introduction, cued it up, said this has been an extremely sad day for so many of us in radio sport. And of course, I imagine for so many of you as well, listeners, not just around the country, but around the world who've grown up listening to this man's voice, Peter Jones passed away today at the tragically early age of 60 did my stuff and handed to him. And he delivered the most magnificent piece of oratory for eight minutes without a note, with tears pouring down both cheeks, just really talking about his friend and the wonderful talent that was Peter Jones. And that was a tour de force of broadcasting, probably to match some of those that Peter Jones produced at Hillsborough and Heisel in a very different way. But of course, just as a natural piece of broadcasting, it was wonderful. So that was a uh, a memory that that stays with me. Um, I, the other day, someone pointed out that it was 30 years ago to the day since that wow. had happened and, and actually posted online that broadcast, which I'd never heard since. Oh, wow. So oh, I, I must look for that. Listen to it. And I could, uh, I mean, I could still visualize Cliff in floods of tears doing this wonderful tribute to his great friend. Do you happen to know where that is offhand? There's a chap who lives in France. John Murray was the one who alerted me to... Um, this chap who seems to archive classic pieces of radio broadcasting over the years and has access oh, wow. to them and occasionally posts them on Twitter. So that was oh. how I discovered it. I will have a look. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, an amazing privilege, in it, albeit a, a tough circumstance. Um, how did you feel about your voice and your delivery at that time then? What, what did you feel you needed to work on? What was the sort of feedback you were getting uh, for good or bad? Well, the first thing to say, Nick, was that I hated my voice and I hate oh, really? my voice and I can't listen to my voice. So why anyone else should be forced to, I really can't understand. You still feel like that? Yeah, I do. I feel, I, I even when we were doing the preamble before starting yeah. the recording and you played me back a couple of things just to test the level, it makes me cringe. I just, wow. I, and, and it's exactly the same as the first time that I ever heard myself, which was my mum had recorded on her little cassette player my first broadcast um on radio leads 
36 years ago. And I asked her to switch okay. it off after about 10, 10 words. Now, obviously, I do have to listen to myself because I need to know what I, in my view, I'm doing right and maybe I'm doing wrong and I'm my own biggest, toughest critic. Um, so I do listen from time to time, but I'll do so in the privacy of a darkened room at the back of the house where no one else can hear. Um, <laughs> yeah. So uh, in terms of my voice, I was always told that I'd got a good broadcasting voice. And I suppose what I've been taught over the years is to use it more effectively in terms of light and shade, pace. Okay. Uh, and the big sea change, not in terms of voice, but in terms of delivery, was, of course, the move from radio to television because the mm. jobs are just almost entirely different mm. um, in that on radio you have, I think, the ultimate privilege as a broadcaster, which is that you're sitting there rather like an artist with a blank piece of canvas and a palette of paint, and you're asked to paint pictures. You're asked to be the eyes and the ears of listeners wherever they may be. And when I used to go to some of the training courses at the BBC, their recommendation always was, imagine you're broadcasting to a blind person um, and try and fix their face in your mind so that you're talking directly, personally to them. And I always found that to be quite a good guide. But what a luxury to s sit there with a scene unfolding in front of you, a constantly changing scene, but one that you can reflect in whatever style that you wish. And as long as you get the key moments right... The rest, it's not that it doesn't matter, but you have the luxury of describing it in whatever mood, way you choose. So mm. that's great, and it requires a certain set of skills. So you master those, and then our broadcasting industry being the broadcasting industry that it is, and certainly was when I was coming through, someone in television decides, right, we'll give you a chance. And they're deciding to give you that opportunity on the basis of skills that are not really necessarily totally transferable. Yeah. So I got my break on Match of the Day when I was the Radio 5 commentator the night that Eric Cantona jumped into the crowd at Crystal Palace. And oh. listening in his bath that night was Jonathan Martin, the long-serving head of sport at BBC Television. And um, they were looking for a young pretender to cover for John Motson while he was having a sabbatical. And off the back of that, I got my break on television. But I've often thought about this since. The fact that I'd got to the stage where I was a reasonably competent radio broadcaster wasn't necessarily a qualification to try and accept the opportunity to become a reasonably competent television broadcaster. Mm. Boy, did I learn that in the opening few months and years of my television career at the BBC. Where but it's interesting. I, I think, yeah, I think quite a few people have obviously talked about the difference between radio and TV, but mm. you you seem to be more impassioned than perhaps others I've heard about how different they are, um, which, which is quite interesting. What, what did you find were, were those key learnings in the early days? Well, I, I think the, the key thing for me is that becoming a television commentator on live sports is a bit like putting a straitjacket on because you've come from this environment where you can say what you want, when you want, how you want, and there's your luxury. And that's what you stand or fall by. And Suddenly, 95% of the job is being done by 20 television cameras around the, the field because television is not, for me, about being wildly descriptive because the cameras are doing that. Mm. The most frustrating thing I find about watching a television broadcast, and this is more the case in America than the, in the United Kingdom, is when the commentator is telling you something that you can very obviously see. So there's no mm. room in a television commentary for any form of geography. 
you know, X running down the right wing. Well, you can see that X is running down the, the right wing. Um, mm. And there's no room for any physical description of the, the players because, again, the camera's doing that job for you. Um, and so much of television commentary can, if you don't get the early guidance, just be an exercise in almost filling airtime because you feel you should be saying something. But Messrs. Motson and Davis were both very good with me. And they said, if you're ever wondering on television, as you adjust to this new challenge on TV, whether you should be talking at any particular point, don't. Because if you're mm. having to think, should I be saying something? The answer is very definitely no. Mm. And, you know, Motti would talk more than Barry Davis would. Barry was masterful in his economy of language and the fact that he was brave enough to use silence or mm. ambient crowd noise and not try and intrude. And I think there's a danger, particularly when you start in television and you wanted to make a big impression that you think, right, I'm going to be really clever. I'm going to think up a few lines beforehand that I might be able to use. And boy, if there's a big moment, am I going to hammer it? Well, that's not the TV commentator's job. Just occasionally, you'll get lightning in a bottle. Kenneth Wollstoneholm at the end of the World Cup final in 1966. Clive mm. Pillsley at 1999 Champions League final. And Solskjaer has won it. Um, but the best lines, in my opinion, and everyone has a different opinion on this, are the ones that haven't been preconceived, are entirely spontaneous. And I think there's a wonderful bravery about a commentator who you see a fabulous goal scored and they just shout the goal scorer's name and then they shut up. Yeah. And I think one of the greatest examples of that was Dennis Bergkamp's goal in the 1998 World Cup quarterfinal um, for the Dutch against Argentina, which Barry Davis did at, at the Olympic Stadium in Marseille. And um, it, it's a magnificent example of how the commentator is not the star. Dennis Bergkamp mm. on that occasion was the star and Barry just delivers the goal and then shuts up and the, the TV director does the rest, panning around yeah. the ground. It's mayhem. It's bedlam. You've just seen one of the great World Cup goals scored and Barry lets it breathe. And that's not to say that he's the only one that does that. Far from it. But for me, he was the most consistent exponent of that. And he used to hammer that into me in the nicest possible way. When we'd go for lunch, he would say, yeah. look... Um, he always used to say that he saw a bit of his approach in me, which is not in any way to put me in the same category as him as a broadcaster, because I think he is absolutely up there at the very, 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 very top level. He but is. he he would always say, what I like about you is that you are brave enough not to speak if you feel you don't want to speak. And mm. I always used to take that as a bit of a badge of honour. But he also used to say to me, you are going to find it harder and harder. He said, I, as in Barry, have suffered from this in my career because some executives have looked at it and thought, well, you're not excited enough. Well, it's not that I'm not excited enough, he would say. It's just I'm letting the occasion breathe. And he said, yeah. you, working through your span of years to come, the way the industry is changing, will find it frustrating because a lot of people won't necessarily appreciate that approach. But he said, I would, I would say to you with all my heart, you know, follow your heart on this. And if that's how you feel it should be done, do it like that. And he did it to the very day that he retired. He did it in his yeah. way. And obviously he was able to do that because he had a, a very um, firmly established reputation. But even so, I, I thought those were those were good words and wise words really on his part. Yeah, I think they are. And, you know, I think, you know, more recent examples. And as you say, there are plenty of them. But but Martin Tyler, albeit he gives a fair amount to the Aguero rising rising scale, but actually he's silent for an awfully long time as as the rest of the crowd do the business. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I counted s such a long time between his, his 
between the him finishing that and then saying you'll never see the likes of this again or mm-hmm. you know whatever paraphrase i've done there but yeah it uh, it's definitely something i've learned over the years and and i think it's i think it just gives you i've, I've i had it recently when i was covering the the women's six nations and actually to to allow a big moment to happen and then to just sit back yourself momentarily and take in the occasion and take it because then you're almost just, I, I find you're, you're then absorbing more of what you can see around you, which may be outside the camera shot that the director's chosen or whatever, mm-hmm. that I think then helps you tell the broader story for the next line that you are going to come back in with. Yeah. I think the basic equation on TV, if you strip it down, is that you have to use so many fewer words than you do on radio. But those words that you do choose to use need to carry considerably greater weight. You can't waste words on TV. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You have made me realise, though, the amount of times I've probably been commentating on TV, rugby and gone, and now they head off to the right-hand side. Oh, sorry. Sorry. I mean, No, that's fine. It's fine. It's, I think it's a brilliant note. As you say, the feedback is few and far between. I've probably said that <laughs> countless times. Well, so there's a good note, note yeah, for I, me to work on. I mean, very briefly, now that I'm in America, one of their main sports services on the radio is Sirius, which is oh, yeah. a subscription radio service. And they rebroadcast television commentaries on the radio. And I maintain Ooh. that you shouldn't be able to do that. If the TV commentary is being done correctly, yeah. it be all at sea if you're a radio listener to that. But in yeah. fact, the way that American broadcasting is, it's pretty much wall-to-wall talking even on TV. So yeah. you can more or less follow what's going on. But that rather disappoints me. I would hate to think that one of my commentaries for TV would be broadcastable on the radio because I would feel I was doing it wrong. Yeah, that's very, very well put. Um so we've talked about your voice and and uh, you know the use of silence uh, which which is key um has your voice ever let you down no but that's largely thanks to one of the most disgusting tasting sweets i think in the world called vocal zone which comes in a red packet and it should be red for danger because it's lethal this stuff but what i have found is that when you're in the depths of winter and you're attacked by the flu or horrible cold and it goes straight for your throat and your voice has gone usually you can get enough of your voice back 
by sucking a few of these vocal zones. They might make you feel utterly sick, um, but it does mean you can continue broadcasting and therefore continue working. Okay, there you go. There's John Champion's top tip. Um, what about the uh, what about the sort of prep that you would do? Well, in fact, just to just to finish on the on the voice stuff. I mean, you you've managed to get through by the sounds of it. Obviously, with with vocal zone support, have, have <laughs> you have you indulged in in any exercises, any things like that before you go to a commentary? No, but what I would say is that I think as you get older. And thankfully, I'm not yet old enough to know whether this also applies in reverse as you enter the autumn of your career. But I have found my voice has got stronger. So there were one or two times early in my career where it would squeak a bit at moments of high Mm. excitement. And that doesn't happen. That's partly because I've learned to control it more, but also because I think over time it it does almost bulk up a little Mm. bit. Now, I've not Mm. assisted it with cigars or anything like that, which a number of my predecessors of past generations would have done. Um, but no, I, I think, um, so far it's, it's not let me down. That's what I'd like to say with fingers crossed. Good. Yes. Um, well onto the prep side of it then. Are you, uh, are you a hand writer that will take several hours pregame? Yeah. Yeah. As you'll have gathered from the, um, the technical lecture that you had to give me, even to manage to record this interview, I'm not <laughs> technologically advanced. I'm helped by the fact that I've got four reasonably grown up kids who, are there on speed dial when I need them for things like this. But no, I I started handwriting my commentary notes when I began 30-odd years ago, and I still do the same now. I would be completely lost at committing them to computer. And I also find the discipline of doing it is rather like swatting for a school exam, in that particularly if you're doing a lot of matches in a short space of time, um, actually committing the facts and figures to a piece of paper and physically writing them down helps to lodge them in the brain in in my case anyway Mm. um so it's it's an important part of the process and i keep all my commentary sheets as well i file them away and quite often it's useful to be able to go back to them and i know if you did them on a computer you could still go back to them but there's something quite satisfying now if i get asked to do an interview about say canton jumping into the crowd in 1995 that i can go back through my little filing system and find the commentary sheet that night yeah. to remind myself of what my thoughts were on that particular occasion. That's that's quite nice, really. How do you file them? By team, by year, by no, event? Just by year, by year. Yeah. Um, and tuck them away. I have a, a big box. I even got to the stage where I had a special cabinet made a few years Ooh. ago by a woodworking chum of mine, which occupies part of my office. And there's a separate cubbyhole for every year in which I can file my my notes that's wonderful i like that a lot um you've uh, you'll have worked with a lot of co-commentators over the years um i wanted to ask you why why are the best of them the best of them i think because they understand the role and they do their bit and let you do your bit and they they obey the basic maxim uh, that i think all co-commentators should act on and by, which is that they are there to answer the questions how and why, not what. I'll do what. Mm. They -hmm. can then use their professional insight gained from years of playing or management or coaching to tell us the stuff that we can't see and to take us behind the facade of a particular sport to the roots of it and to tell us why something has happened and how it's happened. So the best of them are the ones that make you sit up when you're watching at home and think, crumbs, I didn't notice that. Yeah. The ones that are specialists in stating the blindingly obvious, I can take a pass on. 
<laughs> I shan't ask you to name them <laughs> Thank you. for professional uh, discretion. Um, and what about you talked about, you know, your, how, how your voice has strengthened. Um, how do you approach the big moments and, and, you know, within any of your prep, you you sounded almost a little disdainful of, of prepping too many lines, perhaps. Um, would you write something for, for a big occasion, for a World Cup final or anything? Um, no. I mean, the the only stuff that I would script would usually be the opening remarks, just because I think it's dreadful if they hand to you and you trip over your first few words. Yeah. So I'd usually write a couple of sentences to get myself underway. And particularly for something like a World Cup final or a Champions League final, you'd want something that at least gets you off to a confident start and is, you know, your first couple of minutes of any broadcast are your sales pitch to say, look, this is worth watching, stay with us. So mm. I think it's important to do that. I script the the team news element where you've got those 30 seconds and the graphics yeah. come up because I think you need to be concise at that point. But that's all I would ever script. Aside from that, you might have an idea at the back of your mind. Um, I did an interview a couple of weeks ago. Someone rang me and said, um, can you talk us through Thierry Henry coming back after he'd left Arsenal? I think he left them in 2007. In 2012, he signed for them again at the age of 34 on a loan deal when they were desperate. And he'd been playing in America for the New York Red Bulls. And he came and played for a couple of months for them. And he made his comeback on a Monday night. And we did it live on ESPN, FA Cup tie uh, against Leeds. And he came off the bench and five minutes later scored the winning goal, looking a lot heavier, a lot more facial hair. I mean, you could just about tell it was Thierry Henry, but it wasn't quite the Thierry Henry of his golden years. Um, and on that occasion, I walked into the stadium. And as I was walking from the tube station, I walked past his statue. And it just struck me that this is probably the first time that I'd ever commentated on a live sporting event where one of the participants had already been cast in bronze outside yeah. the stadium. And it just lodged in my mind. And I had nothing prepared um, in terms of written down for what might happen if Thierry Henry came off the bench and scored the winning goal. But when he did it, after giving a nice big portion, I hope, of silence, um, and it comes back to your point that you buy yourself a bit of time by using that silence as well so that your next line is punchier and better than if it's just a, a flow of consciousness coming out of yeah. your mouth. Um, I, I was able to use the fact that um, he was cast in bronze as part of the commentary as that next line, and that's the line that people keep quoting back to me all these... What's the line then? Give us the line. Something about... Um, he may be cast in bronze, but he's still capable of producing truly golden moments, something oh, along John, those lines. But I can honestly say to you, that came to me in the moment, but it was because I'd walked from the tube station past his statue. So I think that's yeah. a good example whereby you can sit back afterwards and think, think actually, that came out pretty well. I'm quite, I'm quite happy <laughs> I can't, with that. I can't stop beaming since you said it. I love it. <laughs> but I think if I'd written that down two days before in my office when prepping for the game, there wouldn't have been anything like the satisfaction in delivering it. <laughs> no, not at all. Or probably the, I think you'd have been able to hear that as yeah, well. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think you, it, however good a broadcaster is, you can, you can usually see through it if it's a pre-prepared line. Yeah, yeah, I, w I would agree. Um I mean, speaking of pre-prepared lines, um, that sort of dovetails nicely into asking you about uh, about your time being the voice of Pro Evolution Soccer, <laughs> um, because uh, those were all pre-prepared lines, as we know. And yeah. uh, an interesting you sort of talking about the opening bit being the sales pitch, and there were there were some interesting opening phrases to that. I mean, I, I was reading another interview that that you've done where 
you sort of talked about going into a into a Soho voiceover booth and and seeing nine hundred pages on the desk in front of you of of words that, of, of phrases that you've got to say and going this is going to be me for the next week or two. I mean, it it sounds pretty daunting. Um, I mean, I used to sit and I, I am a pre, pro Evo man. I'm not a I'm not a FIFA man, and and I sit and watch it. But I also used to remember you know, going back much further, what some of the early commentary was like, because obviously the ability to hold all the data on whatever these cartridges were being used for on previous gaming systems meant that sometimes you only had half a dozen sentences. And I used to sit and play and joke with a friend, you know, he passes the ball to a teammate. He passes the he passes he passes the ball to a teammate and it's a goal um you know and just that that's probably where it all started but obviously as these games have developed as they felt more and more like it's an actual live game these days such as the the quality of the graphics the commentary the commentary has had to develop with it and you know i've i've worked with i've worked with producing content with people in japan myself and and certainly you would have probably had to do a little bit of work just to just to make things a little more realistic a for the language barrier but also with due respect to you know games programmers not being commentators yeah and not necessarily being football fans even yeah so yes i mean that's one of your probably one of your bigger understatements nick to say that the script might need a little bit of an attention <laughs> <given that. laughs> So that was one of the most uh, dispiriting moments, usually, when you walked in and saw the 900 pages obscuring most of the desk in this studio voiceover booth in Soho. And knowing that, in fact, not only were you going to have to deliver those 900 pages, but you were going to have to rewrite most of them as well. And however diligent you tried to be, your rewriting on page 501 would be less efficient than on page 21. (laughs) Yeah, Um, it'll do. You, you know, your voice would be fairly ragged by that stage as well. So I used, to, I did used to not rail against, but I would quite forcibly say to the people that were organising it, look, you need to spread out the voiceover sessions more than you are. There's no point putting me in a booth for eight hours a day for seven days in a row because my voice will have gone and mentally I'll have gone after day two. Yeah. Um, and it, gradually they relented and it became a slightly easier process. And of course, year on year, I think I did eight seasons of it in all. And each year the library already in existence, would be considerably bigger. So it wasn't quite such a daunting task each year. But it was, I never found it, I don't want to seem in any way ungrateful, because it was it was very nice to be involved in it. But it, it was an entirely different experience to broadcasting live, because yeah, I get my adrenaline same, from, no, I get my adrenaline from doing the high wire act, you know, without the safety net, which is live sports broadcasting. That's the thrill of it. And there's none of that. And mm. yet... More and more I've come to realise, and I don't think I realised it when I first started, that lots of people only know you for that. I mean, Yeah, I, that's you know, curious, isn't it? Football World Cup of 2010, I checked into a hotel in Durban at about three o'clock in the morning, and we'd just flown from Johannesburg having done a game, and ITV hired us this little sort of private plane to get us around because you couldn't do that World Cup on scheduled airlines, otherwise you'd only have done half the number of games. And they hired what we subsequently found to be the oldest... Um, small passenger plane still in service on the African <laughs> continent. It was registered in something like 1947. And, and it was great. Um, but on this particular occasion, we'd just flown into Durban and I got to the hotel and all I wanted was my bed. There was another big game the next day and I just wanted a few hours sleep. And there was this chap behind reception with a gleaming smile and he said, ah, oh, Mr. Champion, we've been waiting for your arrival. And I thought, oh, I don't want to talk. I just want to sleep. And he said, uh, yeah, we've been waiting. And he started rummaging beneath the desk. And then 
three of his friends appeared from the office behind the reception desk as well with boxes under their arms. And oh uh, they said, oh, you're the voice of pro-evolution soccer. And I thought, yes, I am, and smiled with a rather fixed grin at this stage. Yeah. Um, and as they uh, rummaged beneath the desk and looked at their boxes, they started opening them. And each of them had brought 50 copies of pro-evolution soccer for me to sign. Oh. And presumably they're on eBay within hours. Yeah, you'd imagine. So yeah. that, that was the pen. And they, the guy wouldn't give me my room until I'd signed all these copies of pro-evolution soccer. Oh, my goodness. And it was that that brought home to me. I mean, maybe they were just entrepreneurial and with an eye for the main financial chance. Not sure that my my signature would necessarily enhance the value of those uh, pro-evolution soccer games. but um, (laughs) It it went down immediately. Yeah, it did start to teach me just how much it means to so many people. And then when I was doing the World Feed commentary for the Premier League, so much of which goes to countries where pro-evo is a big thing, that too brought it home to me. And suddenly I realised that this thing I've been doing for several years was actually quite a significant part of many people's lives, which mm. it's, it's my own shortfall. I'm not a, a player of sort of video or computer games. So I've never really appreciated that. Had your, had your kids played? Was dad on the PlayStation? Uh, a couple of them had played. I used to hear my voice coming out of the dining room or something. But as I <laughs> said to you before, I don't like the sound of my own voice. So I used to veer yeah. off to the other end of the house. Yeah, amazing. I mean, I, I, there's there's a sort of related question I want to ask. It is crude, and you can uh, you can ignore it. But you know, the, uh, my belief would be if you've been the voice of a sport like uh, uh, of a game like that, which is arguably the second biggest football game in the world, or the first at times. I think when FIFA was struggling, but but ultimately, you know, it's up there. Um, is is there a holiday home called Pro Evolution Soccer somewhere beautiful? Was there a was there a car called PES? I mean, you know, no, was, did, was, was a, it? Did it look after you? There was a nice new kitchen. Excellent. Yeah, I mean, usually, usually the money that I earned from that went on to whatever was top of my wife's then current <laughs> list of pet projects. So, so you stared at you stared at nine hundred pages and went, "These are about eight new kitchen drawers and units." I stared at nine hundred pages and thought, "This is going to be tough, but it's going to take the heat off for a while." Yeah, very good. <laughs> um, as you as you grew into the role and and even even now potentially have there been people that you emulated we we talked obviously about those that were in that room when you first started but but who've been the sporting voices that you've uh, that you've rated over the years well the the people that i i suppose in my formative years i would look at and think crumbs you're great um peter jones on the radio uh, particularly just that sense of theater drama his descriptive skills and then on TV, I mean, it was great to be the office junior behind John Motson and Barry Davis, both so different, both, to me, very generous. We're in touch to this day and we'll meet up for lunch. Um, and they were full of great advice. I got to know Brian Moore towards the end of his life, sadly, um, but when he was still working at, at ITV and he was a wonderfully warm man. So people like that all made a, a big impression. But I, I think the thing that I was told by producers very early in my career and by some of those guys as well, in fairness to them, was don't try and be them, be you. By all means, if you see a a feature of how we do it that you like, adopt that or adopt part of it, but don't copy it. Mm. Don't become a clone of Barry Davis or Brian Moore or John Motson or or whoever. Be John Champion, um, but allow yourself to be influenced by the good things and by mm. the bad things as well. And in in those good things or bad things, I mean that, that that you've had of your own. What moments have you have you really enjoyed? What have you what have you been less happy with? Maybe do, do, do mistakes stick with you? 
Um, yeah, they do. They do, and I'm my own harshest critic. So I, I will, you know, if I'm driving back from a game where I feel I could have done better, which is most of them, because in a 90-minute live broadcast, you're never going to get anything approaching word perfect. And, and indeed, mm. what is word perfect anyway? Um, yeah. But I've had some long, lonely car journeys where I've been at the wheel at early hours of the morning, coming back thinking, why did I say that? Why didn't I say that uh, you know my tone tonight was wrong or I just I just felt off I mean we all have days at work whatever our line of employment whereby we're not quite at it and that applies that applies to broadcasters it applies to professional sports people it applies to everyone so there's all of that Um, I mean in terms of moments that I've enjoyed uh, there have been so many I mean I, I think you do feel you're working on an elevated platform when you're at something like a world cup or an olympic games yeah, because um, there are more eyes on you, ultimately. So, yeah, there are. And think, so England-Argentina at the World Cup in 98 for BBC television was a was a big night for me. Beckham getting sent off, Owen scoring his wonder goal, all the, the drama and the general... I know exactly where I was when that was uh, happening, yep. Yeah, where, which was where? Uh, which was in a pub in High Wycombe. Uh, and uh, we were, yeah, we were all piled into, I think it was a firkin back in the day. Mm. Um, <laughs> and I would have been... 19 i think so yes. uh yes having a wonderful time yeah no good um I, I mean i think we can all remember where we are at certain points of our sporting memories um i really yeah. enjoyed i mean more recently uh, doing the world cup in 2018 for itv with ali mccoist we had a great mm. time uh i mean he's mad gloriously mad but yeah we developed this thing in a in our first game um was in yeah, one of the Western, I think it was in, in the uh, the sort of enclave of Russia, which is rather closer to Latvia and Lithuania than the main body of, of Russia. And um, uh, the game we were doing, I can't even remember what the match was, but it, there was a lull in it. And I said to him, oh, I think it was, uh, was it maybe Kalinenberg? And I said, um, Ali, have you enjoyed your visit to this city? And he looked at me with a glint in his eye and there was nothing happening. The player was getting treated on the pitch. And he said... Um, well, I've I've always been a huge student of Russian history, so this is just a joy to be here today. And I thought, aye, aye, this is an yeah. unexpected departure. And, Invitation. Uh, he then he then went on and gave me this this lecture, which was straight out of Wikipedia on the origins of the city in which we were, the bloody coups down the years, and this seemed to strike a chord with the public back home and. Uh, suddenly a lot of the papers were writing about this sort of travelogue that, that Ali McCoist was coming out with. And we we rather um, indulged in that theme as we travelled around Russia for the subsequent five weeks and we had the most yeah. glorious time. So there were unexpected little surprises like that because I didn't, I didn't foresee that being an experience that was necessarily going to lodge in the in the memory. But um, that, yeah. that was great. I mean, going to America has been a big challenge all of its own because the style of broadcasting there is so different and I think it's quite good in your 50s to actually have to rethink everything that you've ever really used as your guideline for broadcasting because they do it so differently over there and the way they consume it is fairly different as well and the expectations of a broadcaster are different in that you Mm. have to present the coverage as well as commentate on it by and large even if you're Al Michaels the, the sort of godfather of US sports broadcasting and you're doing the NFL on uh, on a Sunday night, the most watched program in America, you have to present it as well as commentate on it, and that feeds down to what I do as well. So mm. it's been really nice to to embrace different thought processes uh, and to yeah, well, that, that, they have to think about it. 
Yeah, well, I, I appreciate we're sort of, you know, we're approaching an hour of talking already, but that, that, that was obviously something I wanted wanted to just touch on is is, is a move over there and mm-hmm. and how different it feels in terms of delivery and 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 what other what what learning you you're you're having to undertake as a commentator who's who's got you know thirty plus thirty plus years experience, but is is now having to perhaps learn a new way. Well, the biggest change is that that you are the presenter as well as the commentator and that means mm. you don't get time for a cup of tea at half time not that you necessarily want a cup of american tea i have to say nick <laughs> but um i think no, there's you're, been a recent meme on social media that has been offending people oh, about i've seen that have you yeah on the TikTok that, yes. or something. yeah i mean it's just a crime it really and i didn't even know where to start in describing especially that. for a man from yorkshire yeah yeah, yeah. my all my <laughs> american friends bombarded with me, me with it saying there's a great instructional video here you've got to see it <laughs> So they know how to get under my skin. But no, yeah. about the broadcasting, you, know, you go on, windows are very tight on American TV, particularly on ESPN, because they've got so many live events that if you've got a 90-minute soccer game, as we have to call it, and you've got um, injury time and you've got half time, you know, it'll be a tight one hour 51 window to squeeze that in. So mm. you're on maybe five minutes before kickoff, but you've got to squeeze, squeeze in a three-minute commercial break. You then have two commercial breaks at half time, which you have to do in vision. And then you're off air within probably a minute of the event ending. But again, in vision, they love their on camera mm. stuff, as they call it. So you have to be ready for some quick adjustments because you need a different microphone. I insist on using a lip mic to commentate with, which yeah. I think is wonderfully antiquated. And it probably is, but it's also a great tool to have. But you have to ditch that and you have to ditch your headphones and put your earpieces in for your on camera stuff. So there are all those little turnarounds. You don't get the thinking time surrounding the game. That yeah, you in in Europe, so that's very different. The number- Although I think I think actually a lot of I think that is changing a little bit over here because you know I I find there's a worrying trend for money to be spent by broadcasters on acquiring rights, mm-hmm. and then there is less money going into production. So actually, well, I've done I've done quite a lot of coverage where I've you know written the theme tune and sung the theme tune in terms of presenting and commentating, which being in front of camera in that sense wasn't something I particularly wanted to do. But as someone pointed out to me, well, you've now done it you know, over 50 times, which means you're you're now an experienced presenter as well as commentator. Yeah. So that's handy for future work. And all of a sudden you realise accidentally, you know, to, as you've mentioned a couple of times, you've ended up with a skill or, or experience in an area that, that might make you more employable. Yeah. I mean, I, there's no mistaking the fact that American broadcasting is all about the dollar. So mm. the main thing by which I'm judged on a weekly basis is whether I get all the sponsors mentions away in the course of the broadcast. And I have a producer... Wow who stands next to me in the booth, as they like to call it. And his job is just to pass me the right sponsors card at a particular point in the broadcast. And then he ticks them off on a list so that we've fulfilled all our commercial contractual obligations to Heineken or Audi or whoever the the sponsor are. So they can be quite intrusive. So that's an art in itself. And I'm not sure I've mastered it yet of actually making them seem as unobtrusive to the broadcast Mm. as possible, whilst at the same time, giving them the airtime that they've paid for. So that's something that we don't really encounter in, in this country. Endless promos. We think we get a lot of promos on commercial television here and on satellite TV. Nothing compared to those in the United States. Um, yeah, do you manage to squeeze in any commentary? Uh, occasionally, <laughs> occasionally. But, but as I said, I'm not judged by that. You know, my salary gets paid if I do the sponsors mentions. So that's... Well, there you go. Yeah, uh, in in fairness, what's one of the... The big attractions of going there is that the job in America for an announcer, as they would call it, a commentator would be our description or or job title. It's a bit like having the job here 30 years ago. So when I first started at BBC Television, ITV, 
you would do 35, 40 games a season. You would have time to concentrate on all of them, prepare properly, and then wind on. And it relates to a point you've just made about the amount of money that uh, broadcasters are now spending on the rights, you know, 12, 13 mm. million quid for Sky to put a Premier League game on Monday night football, even if it's a run-of-the-mill fixture. There's not a lot left for production, uh, let alone mm. for the so-called talent. So those big exclusive contracts that most of us were lucky enough to work on have now gone. So mm. most broadcasters are now freelance to a greater or lesser degree. And in my last year in the United Kingdom, instead of my 35 or 40 matches a year, I was doing nearly 200 and 50 days of voiceover on top of that and wow. driving 60,000 miles a year. And now I've wound back and my first year in America was 2019. And last year I did 34 commentaries and that was my job. And I'm able to give them the due care and attention that I want to. So I feel very privileged that I've managed to find a way of extending the golden era of sports broadcasting yeah. in my own selfish case of being able to do the job as I was taught to do it, as I like to do it. And there's also, I think, it's not a reverence, but there's an appreciation of what a sports commentator is in America that I think used to be the case here, maybe 30 years ago, certainly a generation or more back, but it still pertains in the US. For how much longer, I don't know. No. But whilst it's there, I'm very happy to have a piece of it. Excellent. Well, I look forward to you putting in a good word for me. Um, they, they, they seem to have gone bananas for my life commentary parody stuff. So uh, whether they'd still like me for uh, for that, I don't know whether it's the stupid British accent or what, but uh, they've certainly been enjoying that. The British so, accent uh, takes yeah. you a long way in America. Yeah, I'll, 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 I'm, I'm keen to get over there and make the most of it. Um, I mean, I've, I've spoken to a few people about broadcast rights and, and whether that worries them. I mean, obviously, it, you know, you've 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 allowed your class and skill to take you from from key broadcaster to broadcaster and, and through a number of sort of what I would call more secure roles than than you know being a freelancer necessarily but do you do you see within within your broadcast career that changing and you and you having to in the nicest possible sense sort of muck in with the rest as as rights jump here there and everywhere i think that's happened already nick i think mm. that's happened virtually for everyone um you know you look at the people in our industry, particularly doing football, but but across rugby as well, and exclusive contracts are almost non-existent now. True. You know, you maybe look at someone like Martin Tyler, but Martin has been there for so long and was there on a certain basis, which quite rightly they they've maintained at Sky. But mm. once he's retired, I I don't see other people being afforded that privilege or that security. So. Without winding back too far, when I first started at the BBC and then when I moved to BBC television, I was naive enough to think that I could still spend my career or the vast majority of it with one broadcaster. And I was told, come to BBC television, as long as you train on, you'll become our number one when Motti retires. Well, I got fed up of waiting. You know, I was 36 yeah. when they lost all their rights in 2001 and decided to take opportunities elsewhere. And I've never really regretted that, despite my love for the BBC. But mm. now it, it's so fragmented that you've got really, really good broadcasters who are having to take a bit of work here, a bit of work there, a bit of work from, you know, my last year in the in the UK, I think I had 25 different sources of income as a, as a freelance. You look at someone like Peter Drury, whose name came up earlier. Peter and I have mm. worked sort of hand in glove alongside each other for various broadcasters over many years um, and have, have been friends for many years. We both worked at Radio Leeds together all those years ago. And he has an existence now and he's probably better suited to it. I think he's he's... He's been more accepting of it, of 
working for Premier League Productions, working for BT, doing a little bit here, doing Pro Evo. And, and, and yeah, did you give him that gig? Yeah, oh, I just absolutely handed it to him. No, I was, I, was happy, <laughs> I was happy to have done eight years and I was happy to sign off. But I think it needs someone with new energy coming into it because of the reasons that we discussed. Yeah, earlier. it probably does. Um, yeah, sorry, I jumped in. So no, no, I'm just making the point really that, that people that probably in the old terms deserve to have a really nice contract with one broadcaster and the same check arrives every month and you don't have to worry about turning out six, seven days a week. Those days have gone, and I had that. So when ESPN lost their rights in 2013, I then had five and a half years where I was in that that world. And yes, I was right. Yeah, okay, yeah. small contract with ESPN and you know, small undertakings from Premier League and things, and you put them together and you'd make your living very nicely. And we were very lucky, and we were fortunate because we'd got reputations on which to trade. But if I was 30 years younger, I'd be looking at it and thinking, look, I'm not sure where my career comes from here. I think I can have a series of potentially really nice opportunities mm. and great experiences, but I'm not sure how you knit it all together to become a career that pays you a consistent wage over the bulk of your working life. Mm. Yeah, no, I think that's that's the challenge a lot of people face. It's it's It, it reflects my my relative existence, I would say, as well. Um, so, yeah, I I think it's only going one way, but uh, but we will see over the years and... and uh, how those kind of things will play out, I guess. But set um, against that, Nick, you've also got the opportunities that weren't there for us when we were your age, frankly, in that the media has exploded in so many ways. So there are so many other potential revenue streams that were never open to us. So it is, it, it's a curse in some senses, but it's also a blessing and an opportunity in others. Yeah, it's, yeah, there is certainly a lot of opportunity, and and uh, and people can just do it as well. You know, there are there are now platforms where you can commentate from your sofa, and it will it will sync up to the action on the screen. And like a radio station, anybody can come and tune into it online, and you can become your own sofa commentator and and build up a following. And and who knows, that may be the next thing to to really take off in terms of people's profiles and followings. Um, just a couple then before we, we round off, John. I'm so grateful for your time. Um, what would you perhaps like to have commentated on that you've never had the chance to? Oh, I would like to have done more cricket. I had three years doing TMS, which was some of the best fun that I ever had. But then when I left the BBC because of my television work, I also had to give up Test Match Special. And that's one of my biggest sadnesses because I would have loved to have done that for 20-odd years. That was mm. just the greatest luxury, to sit there and for 20 minutes of each hour, describe the scene, going back to what we said about the artist with the blank canvas. And with these immense characters around you, like Henry Blofeld, Jonathan Agnew, Christopher Martin Jenkins, um, all the, the visiting uh, commentators from overseas, it was just such a thrill and so satisfying as well. So if I have a regret, and I, I'm not really in a position where I should have regrets because I've had such a marvellous time and continue to do so, and I've been extraordinarily fortunate, but it would be not having a, a longer time on Test Match Special, I think. Hmm. Okay. Uh, and for those that are that are wanting to enter enter this craft or those that are already in their early years, what would be a couple of pieces of advice you might give to someone looking to become a commentator or to improve? Um, be yourself. Don't copy, but learn from others. And if you're at the very start trying to make your way, it's all right paying lip service to it and saying, I want to be a commentator because it's on the face of it, a very glamorous thing to do. And it is a wonderful way to make a living. However, it is to do it well, hard work as well. 
And I would say to a young aspiring commentator in that pool of people trying to make an impression and get an opportunity, you've got to want this more than everybody else. And it's all right saying you want it, but wanting it means still doing your prep at two o'clock in the morning, being prepared to drive from London to Newcastle and back for one gig that's not going to pay very well, or going to your local radio station and making the tea on a Saturday afternoon to get that chance. Because we've all done it to a greater or lesser extent, and it's been our keys to the door of a terrific industry, which still has great opportunities on offer. But you've just got to be more persistent, more devoted, more energetic, more committed than anybody else. Who out there do you sit comfortably and listen to that is currently uh, at the top of their game? Oh, lots of people. I mean, I think the standard is really good. The standard is is really good. But people don't cut through in the way that they did however many years ago because there were so many outlets. Yeah. So, you know, I look at across the industry um, and it's it's almost invidious to single out names because... That's fine, that's then, fine. Then there'll be other people thinking, well, why didn't you mention me? But there are... There are so many uh, that I can stick. Well, I think we can we can get lulled into thinking that the golden era of the forty, you know, thirty, forty year, fifty year BBC, you know, names that we knew because all the sport was on a on was somewhere like the BBC or a bit on ITV and wherever else that where where you have your Brian Moores and and people and and obviously yourselves in more recent yourself in more recent years. But I think people are guilty of sometimes saying oh well it's not the same isn't it you don't have those voices that are known for their sports and yes the fragmentation of rights and broadcasters and outlets has has meant that they're not as devoted in one area but yeah I, it sounds like you're saying you know what I would what I would say which is it doesn't mean that the quality of the work being done out there is any less no no I, I, I think you're right that the top operators now would have sat very happily in that era as well um, yeah and it, it would be interesting to know whether if you took the great broadcasters of 40 odd years ago on the BBC and put them into today's world, how they would cope because they wouldn't yeah. be able just to sit there and do one gig every three weeks um, yeah. or three months in some cases. But that's part, <laughs> of the, that's part of the fascination of the whole thing, isn't it? You adapt to the surroundings, you adapt to your times. And I think the good people in whatever era will hopefully rise to the top. John, you should uh, you should probably be about eighty, given the amount of experience that you've had. So uh, the, you know, I'm delighted that there are there are many years ahead of you. Um, but uh, my final cue commentator question, as always, is uh, is related to whenever that final day may come. You're approaching your last match, your your last gig. Uh, it's your your final fantasy commentary. Um, could be a week, could be a weekend, could just be a single match uh, if it's to be football or similar. Um, what would be the sort of job you'd be happy to call your last? Uh, a job that I'd chosen rather than someone else had chosen for me. So what I'm saying by that is that I hope that I will be compass mentis enough and realistic enough to decide when I've got to a stage where I need to be stepping away. I'd like to have the privilege of being able to decide my own um, mode and time of departure. So mm-hmm. it would be, it doesn't matter what it is. It, okay. It's just something on which I can uh, perform my role hopefully without any grievous mistakes on my valedictory um, appearance and can pack my bag away at the end, satisfied that I've given this role, this career, everything that I could because it's given me so much um, and to be able to then get home, put my books away for the final time and think, crikey, haven't I been lucky and it really couldn't have gone any better.
Very nicely put. Very nicely put indeed. I think uh, there was a, there's a phrase that you came up with a few times over over the course of our discussion, and uh, and that was you know this happened by accident, that happened by accident. I, th- I think it was sort of said three times. Um, I, I basically just you know in the nicest possible way wish you to continue having some fabulous accidents um and uh, and to continue being a voice that that is so synonymous with with great and big moments um you will have a few of your great lines and and we know many of them that were that were scripted for you or that you wrote yourself but uh, <laughs> i'm so grateful for your time wishing you uh, you know a brilliant rest of your career and uh, and i know everyone who's been listening will have will have learned an awful lot about how you do what you do and why you do john champion thank you very much indeed Nick, it's been great fun. Thank you. Oh, well, I think the fun was all ours, wasn't it? John Champion, how familiar is that voice? And, and how much has he done? Um, amazing, a wonderful man, uh, a man who cringes at his own voice after a career where people have clearly demanded more of it. Um, and John's advice, be yourself, uh, takes me right back to our first episode with Barry Davis, um, where he was saying, I want to fail as Barry rather than in trying to be David Coleman. And it is still as true as ever, clearly. Uh, what a super guest. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, iTunes for that review that uh, you said you probably would do. So go on, do it now. Um, at Q Commentator on Twitter. Um, thank you so much for listening. Series three, episode two will be coming around the corner very soon. But you take care, keep well and bye for now. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Winning is an everyday mindset, and we're here to help. I'm Craig Robinson. Join me and Coach John Calipari for Ways to Win. We're kicking off during March Madness. Cal's Kentucky Wildcats are in the hunt. So throughout the tournament, I'm going to call up my friend to ask about his wins, losses, and especially what he's telling his players in the locker room. You got to win every day. Find the Ways to Win podcast anywhere you listen. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.